Hi, I'm Walter Harvey, the senior pastor at Parklawn Assembly of God. Parklawn is a church that both regular attenders and even unchurched people love to attend. Why? Perhaps it's because we seek real and authentic relationships. We're a multicultural church that's engaged in volunteerism and outreach in our community and world. Let's face it, we live in a real world. Young people are facing challenges in their school, relationships, and career choices. That's why we're focused on practical matters, such as making faith work in family, career, and community issues. If you're tired of church as usual, or you don't go to church at all, then Parklawn Assembly of God could be the perfect place for you. Come check it out this weekend. We have services each Sunday morning at 8 a.m. and 11 a.m. Parklawn Assembly of God is located at 3725 North Sherman Boulevard, right in the heart of the city of Milwaukee. You can contact us by phone or on the web at either 414-442-7411 or at www.parklawn.org. I hope to meet you soon. Well, it's my privilege uh, to come before you and to share this message. And for some of you, I have to say again, I had the opportunity to share this on Wednesday, but it was more of a, a question and an answer period, which is what I'm very comfortable with. So because I can't formally have you ask me questions during this, uh, this time right now, I'm going to ask the questions, and then I'm going to answer them. So there will be slides overhead, quite a few slides, because I, when, I, when I share my messages, it's mostly the word just made plain. So most of the scriptures that you will have will be on the, the slides overhead, but there may be other scriptures that I'll quote, so hopefully the media team can keep up with where I'm going. Let's start with prayer. Heavenly Father, I want to thank you, Lord God, for bringing us here safely. Lord, this is a time that you saw in eternity, even before you created the first human. You saw this time because you are above and beyond time. You created this moment, Lord. You know everyone that is here. You know everyone's need. And so, Father, I ask you by the Holy Spirit to help me to share your heart and to share your mind. Because your words are life. And you said to us, Lord God, that men shall live primarily from your words, Lord God, not just by bread alone. And so we ask you, Lord God, to speak that word and to speak that life into us. We thank you for what you will accomplish today. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So the, my assignment was to speak about growing in grace. And Bishop had asked me to share from... Uh, 2 Peter, the first chapter. I'm going to read um, the passage I'm going to primarily focus on, and then I'm going to break it down and hopefully make it understandable for you. It's, first, uh, it's 2 Peter chapter 1. I'm going to read verses 5 through 11. And I'm reading from the New King James Version. It says, But also for this very reason, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, to virtue knowledge, and to knowledge self-control, to self-control, perseverance or endurance, to perseverance, godliness, and to godliness, brotherly kindness, to brotherly kindness, love. For if these things are yours and they abound in you, you will neither be barren or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he who lacks these things is short-sighted even to the point of blindness and has forgotten that he was cleansed from his old sins. Therefore, brethren... 
Be even more diligent to make your call and election sure, for if you do these things, you will never stumble. What a promise. For so an entrance will be supplied to you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So my first question should be up on the board. It says, the basic question, what is grace? Grace is such a huge thing that there's no single way to fully describe it or to understand it. So to make it simple for myself, I just describe grace as both an attitude and an action. We always know or call on grace as unmerited or undeserved favor. But many of us also know grace as God's power in us doing things in us and through us that we can't do on our own. So grace is how God feels toward us. That's, our, that's his attitude. And grace is what God does in and through us. That's the action. But just like what was said earlier in the praise and worship, I ask this question, does God like us? Or does God just love us? Because many of us have family members, if you think about it, that we are obligated to love, Right? Just because they're family. We don't necessarily like them for one reason or another. But how do you think God feels about us? I used to think sometimes when I come before God, I could imagine God thinking, oh no, here comes Curran again. He'd have his big sigh and then he'd say, oh well, I guess I better keep up my end of the bargain of what I cut with Jesus Christ. And show him my love and, and meet his needs. But that's not how God thinks. Just look at what he says in Psalm 139, verses 17 and 18. He says, how, this is what the psalmist says as he reflects upon it. And he's speaking truth. He says, how precious are your thoughts to me, O God. How great is the sum of them. If I should count them, they would be more in number than the sand on the seashore. If you think about it, who would ever obsess over someone that they don't like. And for those of us who were married, those of us who were dating, I remember how I was when I first met my wife. I couldn't get her out of my mind. I really couldn't. I would see someone else and then her image would flash in my mind. And I'd be thinking about her all the time. So that's how God feels towards us. And then you have to ask the question, why do you think it is that God likes us? I haven't even gotten to love yet. And the answers to that are, we're made in his image. We all have a natural self-love and self-like. And God is no different. Because we're made in his image, he likes us. He's the one that fashioned our personalities and gave us our gifts. Now, he's not responsible for this bad character that we oftentimes show. But he gave us our personalities and our giftings. The next question I have is, why do we need grace? Well, I, I can only, for the, for, the, for the purpose of just time constraints, just list five, but this is by no means exhaustive. Why do we need grace? The first reason why is, of course, that it saves us from our sin and from our sin nature. That's found in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. It says, and you can say it with me, for by grace you've been saved through faith. That not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, 
lest any of us should boast, right? So we need it for salvation. The second thing we need it for is to be established, to be settled, to have a firm, steady foundation. To, you know, even in uh, some of the epistles, it says that we stand in God's grace. In Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 9, it says, It is good for the heart to be established by grace. It's because when God designed us, he designed us for it. He designed it to flow in us. It's what makes us function in a right way. It's how we become what we're called to be in Christ. And that leads to the third point, is that grace is needed for our transformation so that we can become like Christ. Because the same grace that God uses to get us saved is the same grace he uses to make us look like his beloved son. And we're talking about Christ's character. The scripture that comes to mind for me was uh, found in 2 Corinthians 3.18. And it speaks about how when we look at Christ, we get transformed into his image. It says, but we with all unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. You know that when you stand in the presence of God and when you sit in the presence of God, don't you know that you still need his grace just to do that? Think of grace as this, this power of God that holds you still so he can do what he needs to do when he's working on you. We also need grace for good works. My favorite scripture is Philippians 2.13. It says, it's God who's at work in me, both to do his will and his good pleasure. And Hebrews 12.28 says, we're receiving a kingdom that can't be shaken. And it says, let us have grace by which we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. And the last thing that I've listed that we need grace for is to win the battle over our flesh. And I said this in the Wednesday gathering that, you know, there could be some confusion when you read uh, Paul's writings. Because Paul talks about how we're crucified with Christ. He talks about how the old man is dead crucified. So if the old man was the one who was in control of me before I got saved, and God literally takes that part of me and kills it on the cross and buries it in the grave with Jesus Christ, then what is this thing called the flesh? Am I, is that part of me that God crucified coming back out of the grave? So my understanding of what the flesh means, and this is, you know, see if I can help you to understand this. It's like this. Before I was saved, the old man was in control, and he was leaving his impression on my spirit and on my soul. And if you can understand what your soul is, it is your mind, how you think. It is your will, how you decide. It's your emotions, how you feel. And before I was saved, this old man was leaving his impression deeply on my soul and influenced how I would think and feel. And make decisions. So then God, at the time of my salvation, takes this old man out of me and buries it after killing it on the cross with Christ. So then what's this thing about the flesh? That is Christianese through Paul stating of what's left from the impression on my soul. The Holy Spirit is inside of me. But I still have these lingering impressions, just like when you have... Uh, 
this mattress cover and you put your hand on it and it leaves a handprint, a little bit of that is left in me. That's the flesh. That's the flesh. That's the part that I'm supposed to put down. That's the part that I'm supposed to use the word to speak to. That's the part God is trying to get totally out of the way. And so we need grace to win this battle over the flesh. Not the old man. The old man is there, but the flesh is that lasting impression that still wants to resist God. And so Paul had this issue. Paul had had numerous revelations. He had had numerous experiences with God. He had performed remarkable miracles. And the one thing that got on his last nerve is found in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 7 to 9, where he went to Jesus three times in prayer and asked him to remove this thorn in the flesh. You know the story. He says that this was a messenger of Satan sent to buffet me. And he understood now that it was allowed to be there in his life to keep him from becoming proud because that would just strengthen the flesh. And of course, just like Jesus struggling in Gethsemane, asking Father God to do this dying thing for us differently, Paul did the same thing before Jesus Christ, asking him to remove it, and Jesus gave him a no and explained in his no that his grace would be enough to deal with that part of his flesh. So we're all going to have those kinds of experiences. So the next question I have is, how do we grow in grace? And that's where we get to our scripture text. In another part of 2 Peter, that apostle says, we're supposed to grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. But let's go back, and it's not up on the overhead, but look in your word and look at the beginning of this chapter. I'm going to read the first verses of chapter 1. It says, Simon Peter, bondservant, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained, who have obtained like precious faith with us by the righteousness of God and our Savior Jesus Christ. And he says, grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge. Now, twice we've seen the word knowledge of God and of our Lord Jesus Christ. Knowledge is important. That word knowledge is the Greek word epignosis. It's talking about firsthand knowledge. It's talking about knowledge gained by contact or knowing by experience. Verse 3, as we read on, says, As his divine power, that's another way of saying grace, has given it to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by his glory and virtue. Verse 4, by which we have been given exceeding great and precious promises that through these you may be, may be partakers of the divine nature, having God's nature in us because we've escaped the corruptions of the world. So the, morning, the, the moment we're born again, God gives us his divine nature. That's why Apostle Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians that we are a new creation in Christ. But guess what? We're not robots. We have been given the responsibility to pay attention to our walk with God. God does not make us robots. He gives birth to sons and daughters. These sons and daughters are made in his image. And just like he can decide, he's given us that ability to make a decision. He gives us choice to obey him, choice to believe what he says. 
And so now let's look at verse 5. Let's see if we can look at these components of grace. So we've established that when we're born again, God gives us faith, right? It says in verse 5 of this chapter, For this very reason, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue. So faith is given when, we, when we're saved because it says in Romans that God has given to everyone, every man, a measure of faith. All right? So we already have that. That's a given. And so why is faith important? We all know that without faith, it's impossible to please God, right? So I want you to think about the relationship between faith and grace like this. Because I have to use word pictures. If grace is the power of God, then faith is the electrical wiring that runs between God and us and that God uses to run through us to others. Faith is the power and grace is the wiring for that to flow. So God says in verse 5, add to your faith virtue. So virtue is an old word that we don't use very much. So I'm going to give you some definitions of it. It means moral goodness. It means uprightness. But the one or several definitions I want you to hold on to is that virtue means courage or boldness or firmness of character. So it means to be able to stand firm in times of persecution. If you think about it, it makes sense for this characteristic to follow after the deposit of faith that God put in our lives. What's the good of having faith if you don't get to step out on it? And when God asks you to exercise faith, he doesn't move you into a comfort zone, does he? The God I know always moves me into an uncomfortable zone. And if I don't have this virtue or this courage or this firmness of character, the faith will never get a chance to be used. Because the word says in the book of James, faith without works is dead, right? So it makes sense for faith to be followed by virtue so that we can hold up in times of testing in our personal walk and in persecution when we share our testimony. So after faith and virtue or moral courage comes knowledge. So how does that work? Again, I tell you that word knowledge is the, is the Greek word gnosis, firsthand knowledge where theory connects to application where truth becomes action. Again, it's knowledge by experience. Let me see if I can illustrate it this way, and I'll use what I do on my job. For those of you who don't know, I'm part of the medical faculty or the teaching group of physicians where I work. And one of my responsibilities involves training medical students and student doctors or residents, as, as you might know them. And one of the exciting things that I do at work is to help these students and, and, and uh, student doctors make the connection of theory to, uh, to real life. I love it when the lights come on, when, when we have this experience. Because when they realize that the scientific facts that they learned and memorized in the first couple of years in medical school and all the extensive reading that they have to do really is true. Think about what that does for them. Do you think that they will ever doubt the facts that they saw go into work when they applied it to a patient situation? They wouldn't doubt it at all. They'll learn to trust that, the, the, you know, the truth of that knowledge. 
And so it's no different with us, right? We get our training by the Holy Spirit every time we spend time with him in our devotion, whether it be morning or evening. He's taken us to, to class. We get our training from the Holy Spirit where he's putting the, the heard truth or the visual truth in us whenever we come in our fellowships and we hear preaching or teaching. Or when we're going by the car and we hear someone speaking to us on the radio. Or when we do our personal readings from the Christian books that we read. It's the Holy Spirit that gives us this understanding in our minds. But then, he doesn't stop there, right? He puts us in those situations to show how the truth works. He wants us to connect what he taught us with how it works in the kingdom. Right? It could be a situation of forgiveness. He might have you reading something in the word about forgiveness, and then he's going to make you come face-to-face -face with someone who did you a bad, bad wrong. And I can hear the Holy Spirit saying, you're going to make it work or not? So that's why it makes sense for it to go from faith to having firmness of character, because what happens is you need this experiential knowledge of how it works, right? So what comes after that? Self-control. How would that make sense? It says to knowledge in verse 6, at self-control. So self-control, the way I want to explain it to you means having the mastery or the proper control of what you have become from that experience of the first three. Being able to properly use what you've been given. Let's go back to my example of, from my job. Medical students are very bright. You know, they can't take credit for it. So I can't understand why physicians want to be arrogant about how smart they are. It's not like they dialed up when they were in the womb and said, God, give me an IQ of so-and-so. So we physicians should be humble, right? So please forgive the rest of my colleagues when they act arrogantly. But we're created to be bright because God designed us to handle these facts and to, to keep them in mind. So these students come out of their first and second years of medical school full of this head knowledge or facts. And then they begin to have the hands-on experience of seeing and learning and making the connection between knowledge and application, as I said, for another two or three years. And after they graduate from medical school, then as residents or, or fellows, which are doctors in training, they can go another three to six years of training before they are finally fully certified. So I'll ask you this question. What do you think would happen if a medical student just came out of his first two years of classroom studies and decided he or she, he would hang his shingle and start his practice? Wouldn't that be crazy? Do you think that medical student would be able to properly handle the knowledge that they had just up in their head without the experiential knowledge? They would not have the ability to control what they had put in, taken into their minds, right? So that's one application of the importance of self-control. But then there's the other example of one who was formerly known as Lucifer, right? He used to be the covering cherub, had the most exalted position, awesome responsibility. Praise and worship leader, leader Pascalance. You're just 
the ultimate of, of God's angelic creation, as it were. And you know, as long as God was the center of his attention, as long as he allowed God to be in control of his life, he was in control as well. Think about it. But what did he do? He allowed pride to take the reins of self-control in his life. And we know how that story goes. He decided he'd listen to pride, and he suddenly found himself kicked out of heaven. Because you have to realize this. God's grace is much larger than what we understand for our salvation and for our keeping and for our growth. Don't you know that even the angelic beings need God's grace? No, they don't need it to be saved. They just need it to function. Anything that functions without God is in rebellion. Think about it. People who are unsaved do not have God's grace working in them. So they're outside of the kingdom. The same thing applies to angelic beings. The problem with them is that once they mess up, that's it. We're lucky having been born messed up, we get a chance to come into the kingdom. So even angelic beings need God's grace to function well because they're not robots either. Lucifer was in that state, but when he decided to listen to pride, he became Satan. He became the devil. So let's understand what went wrong with him. He took his eyes off God, and what did he start looking at? What God gave him? How bad he thought he was? He was looking at his position, his beauty, his abilities, and that's what pride would get you to do, right? But then, by contrast, consider Jesus Christ. He was the ultimate man who showed self-control. Didn't mean that he couldn't express his emotions. You know, in Gethsemane, he was really letting it all hang out. But he was still in self-control. And how did he do it, though? Think about it. He looked into the Word of God. Besides, the Word of God was all about him. That was, think of the Word of God as... Jesus journal. You know how, you don't realize this, but God is a writing God. He gives dictation, and I'm sure that there are angelic beings that write down his thoughts about us, write down his plans for us. So for his great son, he wrote this journal. This is the journal of Jesus' life. Because Jesus says to his critics, the scribes and Pharisees, you search the scriptures because in them you think that you will find eternal life. But these are they that testify of me. In other words, this book is about me. All right? So Jesus looked into the word of God. He listened to the Holy Spirit who told him how to look at this word and understand it about himself. And also affirmed that it was about him. And Jesus didn't just stop there. Looking at the word, listening to the spirit. But he also kept his face looking to and he kept his heart going towards the father. Now, that's a recipe for us, right? So by hearing the word and and listening to what it says about us, by looking at Jesus, by listening to the Holy Spirit, by seeking the face of the Father, that's how you keep your self-control. Because you're not looking at yourself, are you? You're looking at the word. you're You're looking at Jesus. You're looking towards the Father. And you're listening to what they say about you. So you don't make the same mistake that Satan made. So after faith, 
after moral courage, after experiential knowledge, after self-control, we come to perseverance or endurance. It says to self-control add perseverance. Now, why would that make sense to fall in this sequence? That word perseverance or endurance means to remain under or to hold up under the challenges that God brings into our lives. And we could think about many Bible examples. It could be Noah. I mean, think, I don't think I would have the nerve to build a boat in the middle of dry land and, and tell people that it's going to rain. I didn't know what rain was. But Noah did that. Or Job. He wasn't even given insight as to why he was going through. And he was trying to blame God about, you know, for what was going on. But he made it to the other end. Or Joseph, with the way he was mistreated. Yes, he was somewhat of a brat, but it didn't mean his brothers had to kill him or try to kill him or sell him as a slave. It didn't mean just because he wouldn't sleep with his master's wife that she had to lie on him and accuse him of rape and have him in prison. This man went through a lot of stuff. Even Daniel had to deal with three pagan kings. As a slave, as a refugee, but was able to stick with God to carry him through his thing, or even Apostle Paul. So there are many examples of people who have endured. Again, I want to go through the example of what I do on my job. As we train the medical students and the resident doctors, as they show a better understanding of medicine, when they are self-controlled, when they show mastery of what we've taught them, of how knowledge is applied to patient care, then gradually, year by year, we give them more and more responsibility. So what does that mean? The work gets harder. They have to handle a greater number of patients with more complicated problems. Not only is the work harder and the responsibility greater, but the hours are longer. What we're doing is we're testing their work ethic. We're testing their character. Doctors need character. They need to have a good work ethic. Okay? Even I've been shaped by the training. I mean, I can give you an example. I could be uh, sleeping. My wife's sound asleep. My beeper will go off, and I'll wake up, and, still, and she'll stay asleep. I don't know how that works, but I, I figure the beeper is so loud but she's learned to ignore it. On the other hand, if the phone rings, she'll wake up, and I don't necessarily have to wake up because I've been trained to listen to the beeper, trained to to sleep lightly and to wake up instantly and be able to use my mind to answer that, that need that comes across. So it's no different for us in our lives with Christ. The Bible says, to whom much is given, much is required, right? So as we grow in in knowledge and in self-control, God does, he's not happy with just taking us halfway. So he says, you've got faith. You've got upright, strong character. You have experiential knowledge. And you've learned to have some self-control. Now it's time for me to put you through the tests, through the trials. Because everything God gives you is to prepare you for the next step in your growth with him, right? You know, his goal is not to break you down and destroy you, but to get you out of the way so he can see Christ coming up in you to make us more like Christ. And remember, the Father is absolutely crazy about us. And the reason why is this, I believe. 
unlike us, God sees our end even while we're at the beginning of where we are. He is so excited because remember, God is not stuck in time. When he looks at me with all my faults, he says, I know what you're going to look like down the road. And I'm so excited about that because you look more like my beloved son. That's part of the reason why God is so excited. You know, he sees the finished product. He sees Christ's beauty in us. And that's the reason why he takes us through these trials. That's why he takes us through these testings. And just to let you know, when I go through these trials myself, and we all have our different trials and testings, I don't spend much time rebuking the enemy. It's not that I don't recognize that he is. It's not because I'm all that, because I know I can fall like the next person. But I remember what God says in his word, that the enemy has been defeated on the cross. So why would I be spending a whole bunch of time talking to a defeated enemy? I will speak to him just a little bit, but that's not where I'm going to major all my time and attention. I spend more of my time looking at Jesus, listening to the Holy Spirit, and above all, speaking to my flesh, to tell that flesh to get into its, its place. That's how, that's, that, that I believe is a, is, a, is a good recipe for making it through this part of the training that God takes us through. So from faith to virtue to experiential knowledge to self-control to endurance, we're told to add godliness. And that word means piety or devotion or reverence for God. Because, brothers and sisters, it's only after we go through our testings and our trials when God brings us to where we thought we couldn't go through to the end of it, when God picks us up when we have had a failure, it is only then that we can see him for who he is, when we learn who he is. Remember, like at salvation, Jesus Christ is our Savior. God becomes our Papa God, our Abba Father. In ministry, the Holy Spirit is our instructor and our trainer. He's our source of ability. Through trials, God's our sustainer and our promise keeper. When we stumble, he's the one who graciously forgives us. When we're in trouble, he's our way-making, miracle-working God. In sickness, he's our healer. And when we're in need, he's Jehovah Jireh, our provider, right? In fact, that's one of the reasons why God has so many names. One name just can't do it. And one of the things I want to do when I get to heaven, I'm going to ask God, God, what was your original name? Maybe that is the name that has everything, and then I probably couldn't even comprehend it, and he'd have to break it down for me, just like we just did through this, uh, this brief exercise. So the more we see through who he, is, who he is in these circumstances, then we begin to see how big he is, how complete he is for us in every situation. And the more and more we see God for who he is, this is what it means when we see his glory. Remember in the book of Exodus, Moses says... Show me your glory. And God responds in the book of Exodus, this is who I am. And God didn't just show how bright and shiny he was. God declared who he was by saying he was merciful and long-suffering. You know, seven attributes. So when we go through these circumstances, we get to see another facet of who God is. We get to see his glory. Remember, the Bible says in John chapter 1, when it speaks about Jesus, that we beheld the glory of the only begotten of the Father, right? 
full of grace and truth. The glory of Jesus was not so much that he was glowing like he did on the Mount of Transfiguration. Jesus was always glorious. It was his character that shows who God really is, right? Look with me at Malachi chapter 3, the second part of verse 2 and verse 3, and I'll read it to you. Malachi chapter 3, the second part of verse 2 and verse 3. Just want to show you about this process of how God works godliness into our lives. It says, For he is like a refiner's fire. You might want to underline the word fire there, and like launderer's soap. And he will sit as the refiner and a purifier of silver. He will purify the sons of Levi. That's the priestly class. We are the New Testament priestly class. And purge them as gold and silver, that they may offer to the Lord an offering of righteousness. What I want to point out there is the Lord is both the fire and the refiner. The fire and the refiner. So this tells me how much he's involved in my trials and my testings, right? Whatever it takes for God to get me to look like Christ, he's going to do it. It tells me that he is in control of how hot my circumstances get. It's not Satan. Think about it. In the book of Job, you read those first couple of chapters. Satan comes walking up to God, and before he opens his mouth, God does the talking. It's not Satan that was in control of that circumstance. That's part of the reason why I don't spend that much time talking to him. You know, most of our beef is how we are towards God and how God is wanting certain things for us. All right? As, as Bishop would sometimes say, Satan is God's devil for him to use. But this tells me how much God is in control. He's in control of how hot my circumstances get. He's the one that's also watching over me and waiting for those things in me to boil up to the surface for him to skim off so that when he looks... He can see his reflection, right? We've heard that before. So he's not just the fire. He's the refiner. This tells me how involved God is in all these testings and trials. I think of uh, the fire as being the Holy Spirit on behalf of Jesus Christ burning inside of me. Those things that are not like Christ. And how Jesus Christ is that refiner just looking and skimming, and looking, and skimming, and telling the Holy Spirit, turn up the heat, turn up the heat. It's, the, the bad stuff is coming to the surface. But the thing is, even when you're going through trials, you have to agree with God that the things he brings to your uh, attention need to go. Because many times, God will take us through the trial of fire over and over again because we don't agree with him. Sometimes, he takes us to the point of the trial, and he says, are you ready? And then you have to step in. Sometimes you find yourself thrown into it. And you're looking back and you're looking for a way to get out. Sometimes you have that option of getting out, but many times he just leaves you there. So the best thing for you to do is to, okay, God, where do I agree with you? And how do we get through this thing? It's okay. So that's why you should focus most of your attention and your trials on just being with God and listening to him. Amen? The Bible says, because we're receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us have grace so that we can serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. 
I think about Jesus Christ and his time in Gethsemane and wondered how he got through it. And I wondered if he did it because he loved God or if there was some other reason besides his love for God. In the book of Isaiah, chapter 11, the first three verses, it talks about Jesus Christ's sevenfold anointing. It talks about the anointing of lordship and knowledge and counsel, wisdom, you know, all those things. And the last one that sticks in my mind was the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord. And it doesn't just say he's anointed with that as number seven. It says Jesus majored in the fear of the Lord. That's such a weird thing. Jesus is God himself, but yet as a man, he chose to fear or to reverence God. That's huge. Why did that help him? It says in Hebrews chapter 5 and verse 7, in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with vehement cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, it says he was heard because of his godly fear. I believe what got Jesus through Gethsemane, and I believe that what got me saved was whatever he did at Gethsemane, because it's not that going to the cross was a downhill thing, because that was just another mountain peak of suffering for him. But if he had not passed through Gethsemane, there would have been no cross for me to set me free. And what got him through Gethsemane was not just his love for the Father, but his godly fear. You notice in Hebrews, it didn't say he was hurt because he loved God. It says he was hurt because of his godly fear, his reverence for God, his piety, his devotion. That's different from love. Sometimes love will, many times love will compel you to do certain things. But you know what godly fear does? What reverence does? It keeps you from doing bad. It keeps you from stepping out of his will. It's one thing to pursue the will of God. It's another thing to step out of it. And so God gives us all these tools, not just love, but also reverence for him. And that's so important when, when, when God turns up the heat. Sometimes you're not feeling love for God because you know he's the one in control of giving you this difficult circumstance. You're not feeling love. You're not feeling love. So what keeps you going through? What keeps you from stepping out? What keeps you from being rebellious? What hopefully keeps you from complaining and murmuring? It's reverence. Jesus made it through Gethsemane, not just by love, but because of the godly fear. It says that his prayer was heard. Remember, he prayed three times. His, his prayer was, Father, let's do this another way. You have unlimited imagination to make this thing work. God didn't answer that prayer. He didn't answer that prayer. Many times we're in a difficult situation. We have our way of telling God how he could work this thing out. It's usually the short version. God's, God doesn't answer. But yet it says he heard him. And what did, do, what did God do instead? Sent an angel to strengthen Jesus. That was the answer that Jesus needed. Just like Apostle Paul. He had the same uh, experience, right? Three times he knocks on Jesus' door and said, let's get this thing out the way. And what does Jesus said? I will strengthen you with my grace. The parallels are remarkable. It's no different for us. So many times when you're in that difficult circumstance, don't start praying and asking and telling God how he's supposed to work this thing out. 
Ask him for strength. Ask him for endurance. Do the noble thing and say, what are you working in me? And what are you working out of me? Give me that kind of insight and I'll press in. And when you do that, it, he'll carry you through the end and, and, and make you look more like Christ. So remember, God will listen to the prayer of a godly person. Some of us like, some of us, when I say us, I'm talking about believers, like to display their godliness by how they dress and how they act, right? Sometimes even how they speak. I can imagine Jesus would not be in their company. Can you imagine the kind of man Jesus was? He's probably a dressed down kind of casual guy. And he would go hang out in the bars and in the streets, hanging, with, hanging out with the people that no one wanted to be with. But yet he had the godly character on the inside that made him so attractive that he would save these people. And I, you know, it just brings to mind what Bishop has been talking about, you know, when he said, why not lead with love rather than coming to someone and banging the Bible over their head? And looking down your Holy Ghost nose at them instead of being open and being humble like Jesus was. It's no wonder people don't want the God that we claim we serve by the way we act, right? God is not looking for people who know how to speak Christianese or dress a certain way. What he's looking for are people who know what it means to tremble at his word. To tremble at his word. But by the same token, it's easy because God is so good, God is so gracious, God is so generous, God is so kind that we can also become familiar or casual with God. Even in the midst of his goodness and his kindness, remember, God is always holy. That ties back in to godliness. That's why it says Job was such a man and the reason why he had such good testimony, when God spoke his testimony, he fears God and he turns away from evil. The godliness, the fear of God will keep you from stepping out of line. So let's go to the next one, verse 7. It says, to godliness, add brotherly kindness. So we go from faith to moral character and, and strength to experiential knowledge to self-control of what we've become and what we've been given to handle, to endurance, to godliness. And now it says brotherly kindness, which is that word Philadelphia. Phileo means an affectionate kind of love that goes between two people, like friends. You like them, right? It's a responsive love. And I'm going to contrast it later with how agape love is different. You know, it seems surprising that God would put Philadelphia near the end of this whole thing. You'd think it'd be at the beginning, right? But you know what it tells me? We need a lot of grace to love each other. God has to take us through a whole bunch before we begin to walk in Philadelphia. Before we begin to walk in brotherly love or brotherly kindness. Because... It's our natural tendency to be critical of each other. We can see the faults of each other, just like we can see the imperfections in our own lives, right? I remember what I was, when, what I was like when I was young in my walk with the Lord. My I, in quotations, was very big, and my you was very small. 
I had a very critical spirit. It didn't always come out in words, though my wife would probably beg to differ. But it definitely was my attitude. I was a, a natural critic. God had to take that and use it in a different way. But God had to work hard to get that burned out of me. It was like a cancer. He had to be patient. He had to take me through a lot of things. He had to, I mean, it, 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 it wasn't just circumstances. Sometimes it's the kids he gives you. Because when you get kids, you're looking at yourself, right? Sometimes you don't believe what God tells you in your word. What does he do? He gives you a living word through your child. He says, look at yourself. And look what I have to do to get you where you are. And now you're going to learn to do it with this child or whatever. Okay? The amazing thing is that God was patient. He was kind. And it wasn't just directly from him to my heart. The, the, the remarkable thing is that God did it through members of the body of Christ. He did it for the, by them showing me Philadelphia, brotherly love and kindness. And, you know, when, when, when you love someone with, you know, with what you do, with what you say, or how you are around them, then it makes all the difference in the world, and that melts my heart. You know, it just, uh, it just takes away a lot of the, the hardness and, 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 and the selfishness that we oftentimes are, are, are born into this world with. When we walk in Philadelphia... We begin to see the, see the beauty of Christ in other people. And I'll tell you why. When you let God take you through this process, if you imagine that we all have glasses that we look through in this world, as long as there's a lot of self there, a lot of flesh in control, you can't see people the way God sees them. Remember how God gets excited in part because he sees the end of us from our beginning. He knows what we're going to look like. If we would begin to walk in Philadelphia, if we let God take us all the way through this, then we will get some of God's spiritual vision. And we begin to see them the way he sees them. We begin to see them the way the Bible says that they are. I'll give you this illustration. Why is it important to have brotherly love? Because we're members of one body. As a physician, I understand certain diseases that we fight against all the time. One uh, broad category of disease is cancer, and another broad category of disease are the autoimmune diseases. Like you hear them on TV, like uh, psoriasis or uh, Crohn's disease or, or multiple sclerosis. These are diseases where the body's immune system, instead of coursing through the body and uh, keeping up a surveillance against uh, things that don't belong there, like cancer cells forming, the immune system should go there and destroy it. A germ comes in, things should go, the immune system should go there and destroy it. Or if there's a cut on my body, the immune system goes there and helps with the healing. What would happen if my body had an autoimmune disorder, and instead of healing it, my white blood cells started looking at my joints and said, well, that doesn't belong to me, let me just attack it then I would have lupus or I would have rheumatoid arthritis. My body would become dysfunctional. It would become sickly. It would become weak. Jesus prayed in his high priestly prayer in John chapter 17 to the Father. He said, Father, make them one. 
as you are in me and as I am in you, make them one, all of us together, so that the world may know and believe that you sent me. So I believe the main reason why those who don't have grace, those in the world, those who aren't saved, don't want to get saved, it's because of us. We spend all of our time talking about the evil in the world. I told you before, Satan is defeated, and Jesus told his disciples, I've overcome the world. The problem is not the world, and the problem is not Satan. Even though he can blind their minds and their hearts, the problem is us. We don't show Philadelphia to one another. The world looks at us and sees us as a divided body. We are a body of many denominations who don't even work together. Even within each individual body, we can't stand each other sometimes. Why would a non-believer want to be saved? Stop talking about the world and just deal with yourself the way the Holy Spirit shows you. Amen? It is just, just terrible. It's just terrible that we don't understand that. We're looking at the wrong thing and blaming the wrong thing. Another point I want to point out is we always think about God loving us with the word agape. I want to show you in the word with those two scriptures up there that God expects you to have phileo or this Philadelphia type of love for him as well. And there's just a couple of Bible verses that reveal that. In Revelation chapter 3, verse 19, Jesus, Jesus is talking to the Laodicean church. This backslidden, don't think they need anything kind of church. And he says, as many as I love, and that word is not agape. It is phileo, friendship love, responsive love. He's saying, as many as love me responsively, or I love responsively, I will rebuke and chasten. In John chapter 16, verse 27, this is what Jesus says, which is remarkable. It says, the Father himself loves you. That word love is phileo, not agape, because you have phileoed me and have believed that I came forth from God. So God expects you not just to have agape. He expects you to have a responsive, tender, uh, friendship, intimate kind of love. Think of agape as sunshine, always shining. It doesn't care if it's shining in the United States or my hometown, my home country of Bermuda, or if it's shining in Afghanistan. It's just going to do its thing. That's God's agape. It's just going to go out. It's going to hit whatever it lands on. But phileo is like being in a small room, being, or like, like I can imagine, the kind of light that you would light on a, a small intimate table for a setting for two. Enough that draws you close so you can look into each other's eyes, hear each other's voice, and share each other's heart. That's kind of like the phileo love that goes back and forth between two intimate parties. God is expecting that kind of love from us as well, especially Jesus. If Jesus is our great brother... We need to be showing him Philadelphia, brotherly love. Jesus called his disciples friends, no more servants. He said, I have called you friends, and friends share not just agape, but phileo love. 
So from faith to virtue to knowledge, self-control, endurance, godliness, Philadelphia, we finally come to agape. That's a love, as I said, that gives regardless. It's a love that gives with no expectation in return. I can tell you right now, this is the kind of love that we need in our marriages. Not just the eros love, you know, that you, you feel in the sexual relationship, in the boyfriend-girlfriend relationship that husbands and wives should have. Not just being friends with your spouse, which is so important. But also agape love that's going to love even when that partner of yours, that, that husband or that wife is not acting right. I know my wife had to show me a lot of agape. A lot of agape. It took me halfway through my marriage to figure out how to be a good husband. It really was remarkable. But God gave her graces to love me regardless. And I love her for that. I really do. This is what we need in our marriages. I mean, why, why is our divorce rate the same as the rest of the world? Why? That's just, that's like crazy. That's another reason why people, you know, why would they want to come and get saved? We're not showing them anything better. But this is the love that motivated Jesus also to remain dead to self, right? He got through Gethsemane with it, along with the fear of the Lord. And he was able now to face the horror of what stood in front of him. Six ugly things that I would list. He was abandoned by his friends. He had injustice in the court systems. He had intense verbal abuse and extreme physical torture. He was separated from Father God to whom he had been connected to forever in times past. He had the ugliness of all the sin, past, present, and future, put in his body. I don't know how God did that, but he did that, and he felt that. And then he spent time in hell in darkness, surrounded by Satan and his fallen angels and his demons, taunting him until he resurrected. That's the kind of courage that agape brings. Remember what it says in 1 John 4 and 18. It says, there is no fear in love or agape. Because perfect agape casts out fear. But he who fears has not been made perfect in love. So what that means is, if God puts a challenge before me in my walk of, 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 of expressing grace and letting grace change my character, and I'm hesitant, and I'm afraid, and I don't want to do it, that's actually an indicator of where my love for God is. Because Jesus said, if you love me, you do what I say. Not debate not pray about it, not fast over it, but you just do it. That's a hard thing. I don't know how many times the Holy Spirit makes it clear to me to go do something, usually uncomfortable, and I just don't do it. It's terrible. And I know I make him groan. I know I break his heart. But, but that's not how it should be. I have to learn how to tremble at his word, meaning I have to be responsive, Right? So proof of love of Jesus is just doing what he asks you to do. Not ask you, he actually tells you to do it because of the commands. So let's, let's bring this to a close. So what's the point of all of this? So let's read verses 8 and 9 in 2 Peter chapter 1. Peter says that if these things are yours and abound, you will be neither barren or useless. You would not be unfruitful in the knowledge. There's that word knowledge again, knowing God, of our Lord Jesus Christ, experiencing God uh, uh, having knowledge experientially. 
Verse 9 says, he who lacks these things is short-sighted even to the, to the point of blindness and has forgotten that he was cleansed from his old sins. You know, sometimes if you don't learn to obey God and you let Satan tie you up in a nut, you wonder if you're saved. I've been through that so many times. Sometimes, I mean, there are times in my earlier walk, I thought I could never, you know, never come back. I had committed the unpardonable sin. This is what happens when you don't listen to God and let the Holy Spirit develop your character, give you that experiential knowledge, take you through trials and everything else that we've talked about. You will lose your spiritual vision of who you are. And Satan can even use the word against you. Think about it. Didn't he try to do that to Jesus Christ when he was uh, fasting in the wilderness? Started quoting scripture to him. Satan will quote scripture to you if he knows that you are not settled and established by grace. If you forget who you are. So when you lack these things, you're short-sighted, even to the point of blindness, and have forgotten that he was cleansed from his own, his old sins. Jesus called the church in Laodicea wretched, miserable, and he used the word blind. Blind. They have forgotten who they were. Verse 10. Therefore, brethren, be even more diligent to make your call and election sure, for if you do these things, you will never stumble. So it means that we add, uh, we go faith, virtue, knowledge, self-control, perseverance, godliness, brotherly kindness, and agape. Now these, I've laid it out like they were like stepwise, like, you're, like, you know, like almost like you're graduating. But everything is already in us. From the moment we're born again, it's not like God adds something else. He just uncorks that bottle and lets that begin to flow out. Everything is given to us at the moment of salvation in seed form. And we have to cooperate with the Holy Spirit and believe the word and walk in obedience to let God bring these things out. I've laid them out in sequence to show how they are connected, but God may be working on one end or another end, not necessarily in this sequence. So it says, make sure that you make your calling and election sure. And it says in verse 11, for so an entrance will be supplied to you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. What does it mean it will be supplied? Aren't I already in the kingdom now that I'm born again? Is it true? Am I in the kingdom as a born again believer? Yes or no? Right. So what is Peter talking about here that I will get an entrance into the everlasting kingdom? What he's talking about is when I step from time where I am now and I pass away and I step into eternity. He's saying, what kind of reception are you going to get? There are going to be some of us who were faithful attenders of church but never grew. We're going to step into eternity. And I can hear some people saying, who that? Who's that? Because a person never allowed God to use them, use their gifts. They never grew. They remained a baby Christian for all their spiritual lives on earth. Can you imagine the reception of our recently departed brother in the faith, Billy Graham? You think he's going to come in quietly? People are going to be coming around him and say, thank you. He'll, he's having, he's having a, he probably had a huge reception besides having the Lord Jesus there. So Peter is saying, and he's not trying to pump you up. He's saying, do this thing in this life in such a way that there's going to be people there, souls that you save, lives that you strengthen, 
people that you encouraged there that will come up to you who passed before you and welcomed you in and greeted you and thanked you for what you did. That's the reception they're talking about when you step from time into eternity. You don't want to just step into the door and only Jesus recognize who you are. That's a horrible thing. That's what they're saying. So, at the same time, you don't have to be a bigwig like Billy Graham or Apostle Paul. There are people that God calls to be a doorkeeper. People whom God calls to be working in the parking lot or someone who is a janitor in, in, a, in an office building. If that's what God called them to do, and they do it with all their might, and they allow the Holy Spirit to take them through their testing, their trials, they will get their reward. It does not have to be well known. There are people in obscurity that will have positions of power in that everlasting kingdom, and people who supposedly have positions of power here that will have a lesser ranking because they didn't measure up to what God had for them. So don't make the mistake of comparing, uh, I don't want to say this uh, disrespectful, but in a humorous way, Bishop Bigwig against someone who is just a toilet cleaner. God keeps record of everybody. Don't compare yourself to anyone, but just be obedient to what God tells you to do. So let's just talk a little bit about what can keep us from growing in grace. It can be hindered and frustrated. And I'll just list a few things real quick. There's disobedience and unbelief. There's legalism or a wrong belief. There's pride. There's bitterness. There's a lot of bitterness in the church. And there's treating God as common and without reverence. Remember the story of Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron. These are preacher's kids. They each decided that they would lead the worship service without God's permission, out of protocol. And what did God do? He sent a fire out from the altar and just basically just burnt them up. God says, those who come near me, I must be regarded as holy. You have to give me my respect. But remember also, Moses had the problem with dealing with his two older siblings, Miriam, the prophetess, and the high priest Aaron. Now, those are high ranks too, but Moses was the leader. And he was married to an African woman. He was married to an Ethiopian, and they didn't like that. There's a little bit of family prejudice there. And what did God do? He judged Miriam by giving her leprosy. Now, you would say, well, how come Aaron didn't get, you know, how come he didn't get his due? The thing that kept Aaron from getting that, that plague put upon him was because he was the high priest. And high priests are never supposed to have any blemish or spot. That's what kept him from having that sentence put upon him as well. So what I'm saying is that this reverence for God also extends to God's designated leadership. You can't become too familiar with whom God puts over you for your spiritual good. It doesn't mean that you worship their feet either. Okay? But you got to have due respect for them. So I just want to just uh, wrap up. And I just want to just bring out this one last point before I call up Elder Marcus. How do you look at grace differently from the anointing? 
Grace and the anointing are not quite the same thing. Think of grace or growing in grace as God's raw spiritual power looking for expression in our character. And think of the anointing as focused spiritual power that causes a God-given gift to do a certain job or task. It's so interesting. God gives grace in superabundance. And he gives anointing just in limited amounts to get the job done. Remember what would happen to Jesus? He'd be full of the anointing, right? At the end of his day, he'd be exhausted. He'd be empty. He had to fill himself up again in the presence of the Lord for the anointing. But the Bible says he was full of grace. Always full of it. He never ran out of grace. So this tells me, when God looks at me, he's looking to spend most of his time working on my character. Right? If he can get my character right, he can trust me with the anointing. We have examples of people who had the anointing but no character. Think of Samson. It's interesting how God didn't lift the anointing from him until he broke covenant with him, but he had no character. No grace was flowing in his life, and for him it was a disaster. So God is so interested in our character, he will give abundant grace. And if we focus on our character, the anointing will be there, and we'll know how to use it in the right way. Amen? Last, last thoughts. Our God is so much into grace Each of the Godhead is known as uh, something to do with grace. In 1 Peter 5.10, the Father is known as the God of all grace. Jesus is full of grace and truth. And the Holy Spirit is called the Spirit of grace. Amen? So learn to grow in grace, brothers and sisters. Parkline Assembly of God exists to share the light, life, and love of Jesus Christ. As a part of this mission, join us for special services, workshops, and encounters. Park Lawn Assembly of God is located at 3725 North Sherman Boulevard, right in the heart of the city of Milwaukee. You can contact us by phone or on the web at either 414-442-7411 or at www.parklawn.org. I hope to meet you soon.